In today's episode, Dean Falk shares her passion for the advancement of evolutionary anthropology. Whether she's learning how to craft from the great apes, fighting battles in academic cancel culture, or mapping Einstein's brain, Falk's insights from happy accidents embody the true nature of her work, the celebration of ever-evolving human life. I'm Evangeline Coker, and you're listening to Journeys in Research. Journeys in Research is a podcast that transcends disciplines and explores what unites researchers. In each episode, we'll hear from an FSU researcher about how their own journey in research brought them where they are today. Dr. Dean Falk is the Hale G. Smith Professor of Anthropology and Distinguished Research Professor at Florida State University. Dr. Falk is an author of many publications, including Finding Our Tongues, Mothers, Infants, and the Origins of Language, and her most recently published book, which she co-wrote with her granddaughter, Eve B. Schofield, Geeks, Genes, and the Evolution of Asperger's Syndrome. So I wanted to start with the beginning of your research journey. What brought you into American evolutionary anthropology? Ending up in, in evolutionary anthropology was accidental, in a way, because I began in something else. I was an undergraduate majoring in mathematics, and I needed a requirement which where I ended up in a biological anthropology course with a fabulous teacher. He was a zoologist named Charles Reed, and the course was so interesting. I decided by the end of the semester, this is what I want to study. I remember him talking about everything from pyramids in Egypt to chimpanzees and uh, about the brain, a little bit about cognition. And it was like, hey, this field is really interesting. So you're talking about how the brain works and cognition could you tell me a bit about how that became part of your research? In terms of becoming interested in the brain, I did either an honors paper, maybe with my master's degree, studying crania, skulls, in the fossil record related to humans, what people call cavemen. And I did that work with Charles Reed and realized there was a trend towards increasing brain size over time in our ancestors. And that was the first little glimpse or beginning of my interest in the brain. It started with skulls in the brain case. And eventually, I became interested in the contents of the brain case, which fortunately, one can tell something about a little bit from the inside of the skull. And with luck, what's stamped on the inside of a skull is an imprint of the outside surface of the brain, which was made when the animal was alive, or the cerebral cortex. Wait, so, so that imprint stays almost like a, like a fossil, like a, mm -hmm. a fish that mm -hmm. dies in, in the rock and you see the fish's skeleton, you can see the, the shape of the brain. It is um, what would be called a trace fossil, like a fossilized footprint it's called a trace. Fossil. You don't have the foot or the foot bones, but you have the imprint. So the brain leaves an impression inside the skull, and it may be a good impression. And some animals make really good endocasts, where you see a lot of detail. Humans do not make good endocasts. Our brains just don't print that much detail inside our skulls. But it's the cerebral cortex, the grooves and bumps, 
and those can become reproduced or leave an impression that fossilizes inside the skull. And the cerebral cortex, or the outside part of the brain, is where we do our highest rational thinking and language, fortunately, because that's the part that we have a trace of in the fossil record, luckily. Yeah, and, and you've published works on the acquisition of language and as it pertains to evolution. Yes. Uh, could you tell us a bit about those? Sure. You know, people go, what makes humans humans? And there have been a lot of ideas about that. Um, man the hunter has been a popular one. Or the idea that making tools is, is another widely suggested belief. Or um, freeing the forelands, you know, to, uh, to carry things. Uh, that that was important, too, for higher cognition. I think, for a lot of reasons, that the thing that set our ancestors on a very unique evolutionary trajectory was the, evolu was the emergence and evolution of language. And I think that because no other animal has language the way that people do. Yes, dolphins are down there whistling and clicking to each other, and um, great apes like chimpanzees have complicated calls that they make to each other. And vervet monkeys even have some kind of symbolic noises that they make. They have a particular sound for snake or for eagle. But no other animal other than humans has language where we have uh, grammatical rules that are quite complicated about how you organize your sentences. No other animal can use these symbolic bits to generate an infinite number of ideas. So human language is really open-ended, plus it's universal. So language is the one thing that we do, human-like language, grammatical, that other animals don't. In terms of tool production, yes, we do that. We do it well, very well, but um, so do chimpanzees. In terms of uh, warfare, um, which has been suggested as a, a prompting the evolution of intelligence, well, chimps go to war too, and so on. So it's language. So you're working on a book right now that is all about what you're talking about, carrying things as, as yeah. a, a link to cognition. And this book talks mm -hmm. about physical changes that are going along with yeah. cognitive changes. Yeah. yeah, could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Uh, well, the book I'm working on now goes back to the beginning. And I've done extensive work, you know, between, let's say, two and a half and four million years ago. But what I'm doing in this one, which I call Basket Weaving 101, it's intended to be a trade book quote, or, quote, popular book. What I'm doing in this is going back to when our ancestors were still in trees. I'm going back to seven million years and looking at the time from 7 million moving forward. And at that point, our ancestors would have been very similar to great apes. And all of the great apes sleep in trees and spend a huge amount of time in trees. And they do something that's very unique that no monkey does. And what that is, is at the end of the day, wherever they've landed that day, and they wander around a bit, they climb up into trees, individuals, or a mother with her nursing infant. The infant will be attached to her. She'll climb up into a tree late afternoon and then constructs a nest to sleep in. 
They do that by pulling down branches and weaving stems and padding them with leaves. And they can be quite uh, elaborate. So great apes make sleeping nests. They sleep in them. The next morning they get up, climb back down to the ground, say hi, uh, maybe hang out a little bit, and then they'll begin to move about and um, start walking and wandering for food and water and maybe other primates until, again, it's late afternoon, and then they climb up into a different tree and make another nest. We actually have the same habit, in a sense. Most of us don't have our beds in trees, but we have beds, and we make them each day, and we make them in the morning instead of the evening, but that is a tree nest. When you got up this morning, you were crawling out of your tree nest. Um, so that's where I begin the present sort of look at the evolution of cognition, and I think those tree nests sparked the entire journey. Our ancestors evolved bodies to walk on two legs, bipedalism. Mothers could no longer count on their babies hanging on to them all the time because there'd been changes in the structure of the foot, baby's feet couldn't cling anymore, that kind of thing. But a nursing mother needs to keep her infant with her and the way an ape mother does that is she doesn't have to do anything. The ape gloms on to, just glues right onto mom. And uh, our infants lost that ability, not that inclination. Give a baby your finger, and it will hang on to your finger for a dear life. But it will not hang on to, to you for a dear life or to, if you give it something to hang on to, it can't do it. Those experiments were actually done. You would not do it now, but they were done decades ago. And babies cannot hang on the way that apes do. So mothers had to figure out how to keep their babies attached. They already had the ability to make tree nests, to weave botanical uh, material into baskets, because a, a tree nest actually is like a great big basket in a tree. And so that, that was in the mother's DNA. And I think it was just a logical transition to start making little tree nests and hang them on mother's body to keep infants attached to mothers as they wandered. So I see tree nests at the bottom of the evolution of baby slings, and baby slings being very important to the evolution of proto-language. And the key is, is the botanical material. And we don't have a fossil record. I can't show you a tree nest or a baby sling from uh, five million years ago. Ain't gonna happen. So a lot of it's speculative but it's based on comparative information, which is a sound, rigorous way to go at asking evolutionary questions. So anyway, it's a botanical ma material, and, and this is a new, I think basically new idea, and um, we'll see if it flies. I'm not sure it will go over so well with some of my colleagues, because there's an, this idea entrenched in biological anthropology that really the beginnings of higher cognition are reflected in stone tools. You can see that about two and a half million years ago, they start to get sophisticated. So cognitive archaeologists have said, aha, this is the beginning. 2.5 million years ago, this particular kind of hand axe, because it's very beautiful and deliberate and took skill, and you had to have a pre-conceptualized idea of what it was you were making out of this rock. So that's sort of entrenched in the literature. And what I'm saying in this book is, wait a minute, 
Stones are great, but that's recent. So what I'm doing is suggesting there was a whole nother age equally long that preceded it, which I call the botanical age or botanic age. So it's fun. And, um, and one of the things I'm doing in each of the chapters, I have a little sidebar where I find some worker that's doing research or has done research on some aspect of that chapter. And for instance, there's a, a woman who studied nests, sleeping nests, and she's a, um, a, a British person, has, does fabulous research, so I have a little interview with her. So th that's fun to be able to kind of bring into the conversation these people who are doing neat new work. Their interviews are wonderful, the, the insight that they bring, and it's really fun. What was the process like of getting them involved? Did you feel like most of them like responded yes right away? Um, some yes right away. Some um, it was difficult because, uh, for instance, there's one basket weaver, Native American basket weaver or fiber artist, who's fabulous and well-known. He's young, but he's well-known, super, super busy. So it took a while to sort of nudge him into <laughs> to. Uh, but eventually, he, um, he did answer the questions, and, and it's really interesting. Working with other experts in your field and connected with your field, um, are there any strategies that you would share with, with other researchers for how, how to go about that? In terms of collaborating, it, you know, um, well, if we're talking about people who are starting out, they're just getting their PhDs, they're going for their first jobs, so, or even if they're um, just still working on their dissertation, I guess what I would suggest is to realize that it's very important that you go to your professional meetings annually. Nobody told me that, but I just happened to go anyway because I like meetings. Uh, but, but when you go to meetings, you'll meet other people at your same stage. And I didn't know 40 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that the people I was meeting that were in physical anthropology would become, some of them, my closest collaborators in research decades down the road, and also very good friends. So going to meetings, and you know, people would, um, would use the term, oh, networking, which I guess is what it is, but it's super important just to go to meetings it's super important, I think, early on to understand the importance of publishing. Again, that's something you may or may not get from your teachers. Um, when you're working on your graduate degree, it's really important to realize that no matter how much you love teaching or doing um, service work, maybe you want to be a department chair or dean someday um, or a vice president, you know, maybe you want you aspire to that. But whatever, it's super important to, as you're building your career, to publish. Do research and to publish, plus it's fun. And yes, Publish or Perish has been a big part of academia, culture in general, some departments more than other. I've, others, I've never felt like my department saying to me, oh, you have to do more. So it's not that kind of pressure. I just have a work ethic. So what I want to be doing is working <laughs> because I enjoy it so much. And uh, if you love what you're doing, you know, time just flies. I can be working on a paper and, oh, my God, where have the last eight hours gone? 
Mm. Um, yeah, and and so maybe there's less a tendency nowadays to kind of ease up on some of the pressure on, on people that are starting out in terms of publishing, but I would encourage them to ignore that lessening of pressure and, and, and do think about, about publishing. Yeah, it makes you more likely to get published in the future, too, if you, if you wait for that one book. Right. Well, you don't have a, a, a history of articles. Right, right. And, and research builds on itself. You know, you'll research one thing, and well, like the thing I just described, doing the basket weaving project, that came out of something totally different. It's just when you work on something, new questions open up, and they're interesting questions. Do you keep a, like a, a notepad next to you when the questions that you can't answer yet come to mind? And no, you just write but them I down? know what they are. You know what they are? Yeah. Do you like to write notes when you're researching, or do you just keep that catalog? I, um, I do a lot of research at the computer. Mm -hmm. you know, reading literature, I read with a highlighter. And yes, I will take notes. Um, and as I'm writing the book, um, I build collections of notes and articles per chapter. And then when I'm ready to write that chapter, I, I go back and reread it all. And as I start to write, I will make notes to myself where I want to go or I need to get this or that kind of thing. So I know there's a lot of pressure sometimes on researchers for them to find their niche, right? Yeah. And their little angle on an area that's going to open up opportunities for them. Um, I don't know how natural that is for everybody. Uh, what would you say to somebody who's, who's feeling that pressure, I need to find my thing? Right. As any graduate student getting ready, let's say a PhD student, at some point they better find a thing to do their dissertation on. And often their advisors will help them with that. I know my advisor helped me identify. Um, he, he didn't just help me. He said, here, <laughs> this is a different advisor. Here, somebody needs to look at endocasts of old world monkeys. That's not been done. Uh, oh, okay. Being an obedient student. Um, <laughs> so your um, mentors can help you identify. And then once you do something, just automatically new questions start to open up. And, um, and you should be thinking, well, where would, I, where would I want to go next? What else interests me? And I think that way down the road, you need to think about getting away from your dissertation topic. If you publish your book and you've done six articles on it, well, it's time to kind of broaden your horizons, horizons and branch out into other areas, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, because, I mean, basket weaving is a new area. For you that was one of those that was sparked by something else uh, I know you also have done a lot of study on Asperger's syndrome right and that is some, a topic that is close to your heart as well yes could you talk a bit about that sure um, I have a beloved granddaughter Eve Penelope Schofield who's about to turn 30 but when she was a little girl um, in grade school she was very odd and we knew that she had something, but we didn't know what. And when we took her to specialists, they gave us weird diagnoses. It was one of her teachers, or maybe the librarian, when she was nine years old, contacted um, my daughter, Eve's mother, and said, 
I've been looking online and I think I know what Eve has. It's called Asperger's syndrome. And so that was how I became aware of something called Asperger's syndrome. And once I knew that that was what Eve had, I just learned everything I could about it. So that sparked my initial interest, which was always there. And because I'm interested in the brain and cognition, I also became interested in it from that point of view. Like what's going on neurologically and genetically with Asperger's syndrome? So my interest was sparked by my granddaughter, Eve, and that in conjunction with my interest in you know, the brain and cognition. And that led eventually to Eve and me writing a book together on Asperger's syndrome called Geeks, Genes, and the Evolution of Asperger's Syndrome. And uh, that was a fun journey and productive in that I realized in researching that book that there are aspects of this, um, of higher functioning autism. There are different kinds of higher functioning autism, but there are aspects of it that are, are very kind of advanced. And I started thinking about that in terms of evolution. Uh, people with Asperger's syndrome do not have good social skills or social understanding. That's well known, but they often have very intense uh, interests, which can be technical. And they're often very, very knowledgeable about and good at what it is they do there, and they get completely absorbed by it. A state that, um, that sometimes is called flow, mm. or when runners get into this state, it might be called runner's high. And uh, this, is an, a, this is a positive state in terms of discovering things and inventing things. And I think it was important during the evolution of, of uh, advanced computer technology, for instance, in which you have a lot of people who have autism have, have made huge contributions. So anyway, it was, that work stemmed out of the work with Evie. And uh, it was fun to work with her on the book. And this is, here's an example of uh, what it's like to work with somebody with Asperger's syndrome. She, um, they're very rule-oriented, have to have a routine, very rule-oriented. So for Eve, she, she came to Tallahassee. We worked on it here. And what she wants to do all day is be at her computer. She's out looking at uh, fantasy literature or... Uh, mangas, you know, these Japanese mm -hmm. cartoons or whatever. So she came to work on the book with me. And what she really wanted to do was be out in La La Land. And so I said, Evie, okay, we'll make a deal. You keep track of your computer time during the day. And then you owe our book that much time in the evening. Mm. And she kept the most meticulous log down to practically down to the second this was a rule. She accepted the rule, and she totally made good on it. She was born in England, and she's a dual citizen, but she writes British English. So, and I had to, the copy editors at the publishers, they wanted to put it all in American English. I went, no, no, no. Her parts, she's writing in UK English. And so her parts are in UK English. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the work on Asperger's syndrome and evolution, because of that, I learned a lot about Hans Asperger, who was a discoverer uh, in 1944, is when he's credited as having published a syndrome that later became known 
uh, as Asperger's syndrome. He actually discovered it in 1938. But I'd read a lot of his work, some of it in German, which I had to struggle reading, and um, had a sense of what the person was like and what a huge contribution he'd made. In 2018, two historians, one American and one Austrian, independently published the claims that Hans Asperger had been a Nazi sympathizer and had uh, not been sympathetic towards his patients and furthermore facilitated or enabled horrible abuse and even murdering of these children. All right, well, uh, that struck me as preposterous. I read their works very carefully and decided to respond and, and write an article which would give the other side, the other viewpoint. Uh, and I did. And, uh, and they went back and forth mm. with one of these authors where he responded to my response and I responded to his response. So it is a controversy that's out there now, but I really felt somebody had to speak up for Hans Asperger. And there are people, other people that feel the same way, including in Austria, some people that knew him when mm. he was alive. And I'm currently collaborating with them on some archival work where we'll have more to say about it. But this is, at an academic level, I think, the thing that happened where you had young historians of science who never knew the person, weren't mature. If anything, they were little kids when this happened, who trashed the reputation of somebody who's not around to defend themselves. So this is sort of academic cancel culture. Um, I don't think it should be allowed to uh, rest unchallenged. Mm. So uh, more work on that is in the future. Is that possibly an example of, of researchers looking for a niche and just not paying attention to who they might smear in the process? Good question. Okay, so I've actually had people say to me, you know, Dean, you were so lucky. You got into a controversy early in your career with a big name. And I did, about brain evolution. But I did because I went and I saw the fossils and I had a, a, a view which I could support with evidence. It wasn't, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to look for a controversy. But there are people, I think, that look to challenge authorities that are out there and this can be a way of getting attention and building a career. And in the case of what's happened to Hans Asperger's legacy since 2018, uh, I think quite possibly this has been an element in, in people making the accusations that they've made, some of which are unsubstantiated and some of which are just plain not supported by the evidence when you look at the evidence. Mm, yeah. You have to do your research and be very careful before you make a value judgment on, yeah. on a that, person. That doesn't mean you shouldn't challenge wrong stuff that's out there. That's how yeah. science progresses, how knowledge progresses. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to those researchers who are coming up against something that feels controversial and maybe they're 
feeling like it's going to be a sticking point for their career. It could be a, a helpful point for the career if they have evidence. They have really good reasons for thinking, oh, that's wrong. I've got a different paradigm. Um, then go for it. Then go for it. But I think you need to ask your own motives and what evidence do I have and, and how selective am I being in the evidence I'm choosing to present. In the case of Hans Asperger, the people that his detractors were extremely selective out of context and ignored other, cru you know, other crucial information. In my field, paleoanthropology, it's a vituperative, backstabbing field. And people aren't always, uh, don't always avoid ad hominem attacks when they're writing. And what that does, if you read somebody and they're arguing a strong viewpoint, but they're doing it in terms where they're actually more or less saying, and that person's an idiot who, who thinks otherwise, well, it just loses the argument for them right there. So I would say um, be real careful of your tone. Be cognizant of citing, citing other people. Go out of your way to cite other people. You lose nothing by acknowledging that others have made contributions that are relevant to what you're doing. So that's another thing I would do. Yeah, that's something that impresses me about you is that you, you're publishing these works that they're almost like pedestals you're bringing other researchers onto, uh, talking about the interviews you're having with other researchers and, and even your granddaughter, that you, you must feel very secure in your own abilities to give them a spotlight as well. It's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, having other people like doing the, the little sidebars in the book enhances the book. Yeah. And with my book with Eve, my parts are quite technical. It's not really a popular book or trade book. It's more crossover. And my parts, which are on the brain and genetics, are yawn-inspiring, <laughs> perhaps to some people. And some of the reviews have said, you know, it gets a little technical. Eve's parts are really interesting. Um, she talks in each chapter. She has a segment where she talks about uh, some aspect of that chapter, like um, a chapter might address bullying, and she's talked about her experiences with bullying, and it's just hair-raising and really, really engaging. So having things like that improve the book. So some of your work that comes from a collaborative element actually sprung from happy accidents. Yes. And, and one of those was a study you did on Einstein and his brain. Right. It was completely serendipitous how I got into that. And it began here in Tallahassee when somebody who was at the Unitarian Church had a book group that was going to meet and discuss a book about Einstein. And he said, Dean, would you come to this particular discussion and tell us what's known about Einstein's brain? And I said, oh, okay. Because I remembered somewhere I had a little thin, dusty file with like the two things that had ever been published on Einstein's brain. So I hauled out the file and went to the, um, to the book discussion, which was fun. But when I looked at what had been published, there were a couple photographs of Einstein's brain uh, which had been removed when he died. And not much had been identified by the author in terms of the cerebral cortex. And I, 
I realized that there were um, there was a really important feature that had not been noted, and I also had a hankering to see other views of that brain. This is just uh, just a couple of traditional views, and I knew by then that somewhere there were hundreds of photographs of Einstein's entire brain from all different angles and directions. So I wanted, I wanted to get those. And I uh, already did a little note on this unusual feature um, of the cerebral cortex coming out of that experience at the Unitarian Church. I did a little description of an area that actually was associated, I truly believe, with the fact that he was a, a violinist, a serious violin player. You could see that in a particular bump on the brain, believe it or not. But I really wanted to see, in particular, the frontal lobes. So I contacted the few experts that had published on Einstein's brain and said, I know there are somewhere hundreds of photographs. I really would like to get hold of them, and, which was unproductive. You know, door slammed shut, including the door of somebody who actually had some photos. Didn't even answer, not even the courtesy of an answer. So there was something strange going on there. One person I contacted was a man named Fred Lepore, a physician, a specialist in the eyes. And he'd written a wonderful article about the frenzy about Einstein's brain and his death and his autopsy. And it was just a beautifully researched, wonderful article. And when I wrote to him, he wrote back and he said, you know, I've been wondering where those pictures are too. Let me see if I can find them. And so he did detective work. And he, he lived in Princeton, New Jersey, which helped. That was where Einstein had lived his last years. And he actually located not only hundreds of photographs, but slides of um, sections of the brain that had been made when he died, and archival material, including his will, and other things that no one had ever seen. So he found where they were. They were in someone's basement in a box. And he persuaded that family these really belonged to science and they should donate them to science, which they did in 2010. They went to the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Silver Springs. And a condition the family made on donating the materials was that Fred Lepore and his colleague, moi, would have access, first access. And that was the basis for a very fruitful, intense collaboration in which we described the entire cerebral cortex of Albert Einstein, mm -hmm. and we collated sections of it to the map of uh, the brain. Uh, it had been cut up into 240 blocks before some of it was sectioned. And we had a map. We published the map of those blocks. So we were able to do a very deep descriptive study of the brain and make suggestions about uh, what other neuroscientists might want to explore in the future. So it all came out of a book group with the Unitarian <laughs> Church yeah. in Tallahassee. It was a serendipitous, wonderful, happy accident. And he wrote a book maybe two years ago, Finding Einstein's Brain, which where he talks about the whole history of what happened. It was bizarre mm -hmm. when Einstein died. What happened was bizarre. 
And it still is a little bizarre. And he, he described that whole history on it to the present. And it's a pretty engaging read, so Finding Einstein's Brain. Finding Einstein's Brain. Is that a crossover book? It's, um, it's a crossover. Maybe. It's Rutgers Press. And I guess I would I describe it as crossover for for um, a curious lay reader. You know, there's a little bit about the brain in it, but the excitement's in the, the journey. <laughs> yeah. So what's on the horizon for you? What's on the horizon? Well, I've got to finish this book. I've got a couple of international collaborations on, brain, on fossil. One's on fossil brain, and the other is on a, it's a methods paper. And I'm going to Vienna for a month to work with my colleagues there on this history of science project on Hans Asperger. So that, those are the balls that I'm juggling right now. Do you like being involved in a lot of projects at one time? Yes. Yeah? yeah. It works with your work ethic? It, it works with my work ethic. Usually I'll focus on one intensively, finish it, you know, clear the deck, and go to the other. But sometimes I can't. You know, there'll be a stop, a natural pause. So, but yeah, I like having multiple projects. Journeys in Research is a production of the Office of Research Development at Florida State University. To stay up to date with content, you can visit us on our homepage, ord.fsu.edu. Music for this episode by Ketza. Special thanks to Mike Mitchell, Noor Khan, and our guest, Dean Falk. I'm Evangeline Coker. Thanks for listening.